Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. Let me say a prayer for us, and we're going to jump right in. God, thank you for this morning. We are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and yeah, we know that it's, it's powerful, it's active, it's, it's reaching into the depths of who we are and, and shaping us to be more like Christ. And as we explore this letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago, uh, God, help us to see how what you're saying to them is still applicable to us today. God, let our lives be lives that are shaped in light of eternity to come. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen um, an article online or maybe a, a History Channel special where they have a tagline or, or something to grab your attention that says, you know, that they found the body of Jesus. And so, you know, you read it and there's a tomb in Israel that had some bones and the guy that was there was named Jesus. And they're wondering, could it be that this was the Messiah? Could it be that Jesus actually didn't raise from the dead? And, and the question is, is would that be a big deal? If Jesus didn't physically rise up from the grave, would that be a big deal? Should we keep coming on Sundays or should we start sleeping in and working on our golf game? Well, some people would say that you could remove the bookends of the Gospels. Some people would say that you could take away the virgin birth, you could take away the resurrection, and that it wouldn't impact their faith at all because they would say that the important stuff's in the middle. That's where Jesus taught us good moral lessons. That's where Jesus modeled for us a better way to live. But are they right? Is it a big deal or not that Jesus rose from the dead? Do we need to have uh, an alive, physically alive Savior today? Is that a big deal or not? And so that's what Paul's going to address in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, moving on through 34. But a couple of years ago, I started to get into World War II history. I started researching it more and being fascinated with it and just seeing how in the world did Germany rise up and how did they move through Western Europe and then into, um, into Russia and the Soviet territory? Like, how did that happen? And, and you kind of look at it and you're like, what's the most crucial turning point? How did this thing shift where Germany was dominating and, and where did the tides turn for them? And so at one point, as they're marching into Soviet territory, they eventually had a defeat where they were forced to, to surrender in a very major way. And that kind of was a, a rattle the cage moment for Germany. They're like, we're not as dominant as we thought. And then you have D-Day, Normandy. And that, that's probably the most significant battle in World War II. Because if, if we don't conquer that beach, if D-Day doesn't work, history changes. I mean, FDR is probably not um, elected president, um, our view on world peace shifts, the Soviets are going to force Germany to surrender and all of Western Europe is going to be Soviet occupied. History would be completely different if we didn't storm the beach of Normandy and win. All right. And, and so, but because the battle was won, the allied forces had confidence to move forward because they had ground to stand on. Well, today, as we talk about the resurrection, what we're going to see is that Jesus's battle with death, 
right? His victory over death is the most significant battle in human history. If he doesn't defeat death, then we have no ground to stand on. We have no hope or confidence in life. But if he did walk out of the grave, then we have ground to stand on. We have hope for this life and hope for the life to come. All right, so on Easter, we started this series on the resurrection in chapter 15, and we unpacked the first 11 verses. And in those verses, what we see is what we called the irreducible minimum to Christianity. These are the, the bare bone beliefs of what it takes to be a Christian. And so whether you're Catholic, Protestant, or Ethan Orthodox, no matter what team you're on, these are things that we would say, yes, that's Christianity. If we remove one of those things, we no longer believe the gospel. We believe something totally different. And so we believe that Jesus died, which shows us that he was fully human. Because he was human, he could die a real death. He died for our sins, which means we're all sinners in need of a savior. We can't save ourselves. That he rose again. He rose from the grave, which means not only was he fully man, but he was also fully God because a human can't resurrect themselves. This was according to scripture, which shows us that scripture was trustworthy, but we don't just believe this stuff because the Bible says so. Jesus appeared to eyewitnesses, which means that this stuff is historically rooted. And because it's historically rooted, that means that we have to make our own decision on who Jesus is and whether or not that's significant for our life today. If he wasn't who he said he was, if he was a liar or a lunatic, or if his followers fabricated this whole movement, then nothing he did or said should have any impact on our lives today. But if he was who he said he was, if he truly did die in our place for our sins and rise victorious over the grave, then what he said and what he did changes everything. All right, so let, let's continue with that, starting in verse 12. It says, now... If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. All right, so what's happening here in verse 12 is that there's Greek philosophy that is influencing this church in Corinth. And in Greek philosophy, they believed that the soul was immortal, but the body was not. And so while the soul had an eternal existence, the body would lay in the ground and decay. And so because of that thinking, it's infiltrating the church. And now people in this church are starting to wonder, what if Jesus' body is still in the grave? Is that a big deal? And they're starting to doubt whether or not a body actually could rise from the grave. So they're doubting the resurrection. And Paul's saying in verse 13, he goes, look, what we want to do is, is I want you guys to think logically about the consequences of that belief system. If, you, if the resurrection didn't happen, there are some huge implications to that, and we need to think through those logically. So in verses 12 through 19, he's going to say, like, look, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is what we lose, right? So this is like a two-part sermon. Verses 12 through 19, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is what we lose. And then in verses 20 through 34, he says, if it did happen, though, this is what we gain, right? So let's just walk through Paul's logic and see what we lose if the resurrection didn't happen. The first thing we see is, is that he says that, that their preaching would be in vain, right? So the first thing is he says, look, my message would be empty. My message would be useless. It would be powerless. It would be 
hollow. He's saying, look, I've preached this gospel and I've talked about how it has the power to transform our lives. Like the gospel is the power for salvation. It's the power to forgive us of our sins. It has the power to repair our relationship with God. It has the power to completely transform everything about us. And his confidence in that power was the fact that Jesus rose from the, gra- rose from the grave where he could say the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is the power that lives in us. And that's a powerful message that we can have confidence in. And he goes, but if Jesus is still in the grave, he goes, I no longer have confidence in the power of my message. You know, one of my, one of my closest friends in high school, she got invited to the prom by this guy and, and this guy was super pumped about it. And so what he did is, is he thought, you know, I'm not doing the limo thing. He goes, I'm gonna detail my car. I'm gonna get it just right and I'm gonna impress her. I'm gonna impress her dad so that her dad knows that she's in good hands. And so he waxes his car and shines up the tires and armor rolls the interior, vacuums the whole thing, even the, the middle part where the French fries rest. He's like, I'm gonna get those out. And, and so he's so pumped that you know, he puts on his best outfit and he goes to pick up my friend and, and the car's running and he goes out to get her and he's like, I'm not beeping the horn. I'm actually gonna get out and ring the doorbell. And, and as, he, as he gets her, um, her dad comes outside and he's looking at the car and he's like, man, this is, you did a good job. And, and as he looks inside of the dash, he's like, you even armored the dash. Where are the French fries? He notices that the gas tank is completely empty. And so he did all of this work to to make this thing look so impressive, but without gas in the tank, this car can't serve its purpose of getting from her house to the dance, right? And in the same way, if the gospel doesn't have the power of the resurrection, it's useless or powerless to get us from this life into eternity. So he's like, if the resurrection didn't happen, there's no power to get us from this life into eternity. So, So my message is in vain. The next thing we see in verse 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Here he says, look, the the second thing is that my ministry would be built on a claim that I saw Jesus. He was like, my whole ministry was built off of this claim that I made that Jesus appeared to me on this road to Damascus, that I saw the resurrected Lord in person and that he commissioned me to be on mission to reach you guys. And if I didn't see him physically, then I've built this whole thing on a lie. Right, so that word misrepresenting is the same concept or the same idea as bearing false witness. So Paul is a devout Jew. Right? He's the, a religious leader elite type person. And so for him to live up to the Ten Commandments was of the utmost importance. And so in the Ten Commandments, you can't bear false witness about someone. So to bear false witness about a neighbor would have been unthinkable. For him to bear false witness about his creator would have been something he couldn't even get his mind around. So he says, look, if, if I have been misrepresenting God or bearing false witness against him, he's like, I should be found guilty. And that idea of being found, it's standing before a judge in guilt, right? And so he's saying, look, I know that one day I will stand before my creator. I know one day I will give an account on how I've lived my life and how I have led the people that God has entrusted to me. And if I have led you astray with a false hope, he goes, then I am guilty and deserving of the eternal wrath of God because I would be a wicked man. Because this is not something I take lightly. So if the resurrection didn't happen, then, then I am bearing false witness about God, right? And he says, 
verse 17, verse 16 says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. All right, he says, the third thing is, is that your faith is pointless. Because look, your faith is pointless. And, and so some people think about the bookends of the gospels and they think of it kind of like appendicitis. It's like, you know, if, if, you're, if you have to take out your appendix, you know, it, it's kind of cool if you have it and it sure serves some purpose, but if you don't have it, you can still get along in life just fine, right? And he's saying that's how some people treat the resurrection because it's not like appendicitis though. It's not like having your appendix removed. He goes, it's like having massive heart failure, that if your heart's not working right and you need a transplant, you don't live. And he goes, if we take the resurrection out, your faith is pointless, Right? Your faith is futile. And that word futile is the same word they use in other times in scripture to talk about people who are worshiping false gods that they carved up out of wood that they made on their own. So like it's the, it's the middle of Little League season right now. So let's say that you have a Little League team and they're not doing so hot. And little Timmy decides to go home one day. He's got too much time on his hand. And he goes down to his basement and he starts to get a baseball and draw a face on it. He puts a face on it. He takes a knife and starts fraying the seams and, and, the, and the stitching. And he kind of gives it some Bernie Sanders hair. And then he takes that baseball and he screws some arms into it and some legs and, and he brings it to the next game. He's like, this is Slugger. Slugger the baseball god. And he goes, if we pray to Slugger, we will win. And he puts Slugger in the dugout and they're like, let's do this. And they win the game. Like, yes. And so the next week they bring their offerings of sunflower seeds. They're like to, to, to Slugger and they lose. And you hear them talking and they're like, I don't know what happened. Slugger must not be pleased. Maybe he wants big league chew. We brought sunflower seeds, David's, and he, and he wants big league chew. Like next week, let's bring big league chew to Slugger to please him. If you saw that, you'd be like, that's stupid. Timmy made Slugger in his basement. Slugger's not real, right? Get into the batting cage. Like that will be way better than like stealing two bucks from your mom to buy some big league shoe, right? In the same way, saying like if we're worshiping a God that we know is not real, we're wasting our time just as much as a little league team praying to Slugger the baseball God, all right? And if you think about it, um, we, we are basically walking through life with this false hope. When I was in college, I took statistics with Sagatha Datha from Sri Lanka. And she was hard to understand and hard to read her handwriting. You're like, is that a six or a sigma? I'm not sure, right? And so, so and the whole class was based off of three tests. Three tests, you get a grade. And so me and my buddy sat on a row together. We just dominated this row. And so after the first test, I made an A and I'm sitting pretty. I'm like, I've, I've got to, like, if I make two more good grades, I'm going to get an A. And, um, and so one of my buddies, Marcus, did not do well. He did not do well. And so the next test was we show up. He doesn't sit on the row with me and my friends. He sits behind us. And so afterwards, I turn in my test. I'm feeling good about it. Marcus turns in his test and he asks me, how do you think you did? I was like, I think I aced it. And he goes, I think I aced it too. And so for a whole week, as we're waiting for these tests to be graded, he's walking around with the confidence that he aced this test. And then he gets his test back and our scores are completely different. I aced it. He did not. It turns out that he sat behind me so that he could look on my test. And what he did not know is that Sugatha Datha was smart and she had A tests and B tests that looked the same but were different. So when they went down the row, every person had a different test, an A one or a B one. I had an A test, he had a B test. And so as he went through with confidence on those answers, it was the wrong test, right? And so if, if we walk through life thinking we're good because of Christ, 
and, and he actually is still in the grave, when we stand before God and, and put our test on the thing with all this confidence, like, I think I got an A, he's like, you failed. Like, enter into eternity of hell. Like, it's like, like thanks, Paul. Thanks, thanks. Um, it's like, he, because we would, be, we would have a false security because we're hoping in the wrong thing. So he's like, look, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the, de- like from the grave, your faith is pointless. You're hoping in something that has no power to save your lives. Verse 18, he says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He goes, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you don't go to a Christian funeral and say, I'm just glad they're in a better place. Because that's not true. They're not in a better place. They have ceased to exist. You will never see them again. Verse 19, then he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because look, if, 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 we're only, if our hope doesn't go beyond this life, because we are of most to be pitied. Think about when, um, when Lucy and I went on our honeymoon, we went kayaking. And, um, and as I was kayaking with their, our guide, our hippie dude that looked like he had been, like, rode hard and hung up wet in life, um, like, he was talking about Christianity. He's like, that's cool if it works for you. And that was his view of religion. Like, just find something that works for you. If Christianity works for you and makes you feel good, makes you a better person, you do that. If Hinduism makes this person a better person, like, they can do that. Just pick a religion that's good for you and just do your thing. And don't judge other people for what they believe. That was his stance on life. And that's how a lot of us um, view religion. That's a lot of the world that we live in. Just kind of, just pick something that's good for you and that's fine. Right? And Paul doesn't see it that way. He's like, no, 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 this isn't just about subjective good feelings in this life. This is objective realities that have an eternal um, weight to them. And he goes, think about, think about Paul's life. Here's a guy who gave up being an elite person in the, the, the Jewish faith. Like he was an elite. He gave that up. And then he lives a life where he's um, persecuted, he's imprisoned, he's... Um, beaten, he's mocked, he's interrogated, he's shipwrecked. At one point, he gets bit by a viper. I'm sure that's not fun. Like, and he's sitting there saying, if this is all about good feelings, I've done it wrong. Like, if this is about good feelings, I've done it wrong. But you see, he realizes that if, if this doesn't have an eternal effect to it, then he goes, then Christians are, are to the most pitiful fools out there that we are just self-medicating ourselves with a stupid hope and wasting our time altogether. He goes, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you're wasting your time. You should spend it on something else. And so these first few verses, 12 through 19, are meant to be heavy. They're meant to give us pause. And so we should stop for a second and think, when's the last time you slowed down and really thought about, what if Jesus didn't rise from the grave? What would that do to your life? What would change? If Jesus was still in the grave somewhere, if he didn't rise from the dead, is there something you're investing in now that you'd stop investing in? Is there something you're holding back on doing that you would go all in on? Would you keep coming on Sundays would you spend your time elsewhere? Like, what would change? What would be different? Right? Because Paul says, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, here's what we lose. Because we lose everything. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no eternity. And if there's no eternity, then all we are 
is of no significance. We're just another piece of decaying matter in a decaying universe. And that's it. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we lose everything. But, look at verse 20. He transitions. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He says, but here's the deal. We know that the evidence shows us that Jesus did rise from the dead. Like, we don't have to, like, feel the weight of that hopelessness. We have incredible hope, and here's what we get to gain. When he talks about first fruits, if you have an agricultural crop, that first fruit is the sample of the quality of what's to come. And he goes, Jesus shows us the quality of the eternal life that we will one day have. Like, we get resurrection. We get another life, another body. We get eternal life. Then he says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He's like, Jesus, well, here's what we get. We get to be made alive again. But I love what he does in verse 21 and 22. He paints a picture of the bad news and the good news. All right, because if we talk about how the gospel is good news and it's good news that Jesus rose from the dead, we have to know that there's also bad news. What's the bad news? What's the bad news? He says, in Adam, we have, we have inherited death, okay? In Adam, we are, because of Adam and Eve's original sin, we have all inherited that, every single one of us. Because of that, we are born dead to God's ways and we are born alive to sin and rebellion which means there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, okay? The, a word that's used for that is called total depravity. And sometimes that, that term gets, gets a bad rep. Let me explain what it means. Depravity comes from the Greek word, or the, the Latin word that means crooked. And so when we say depravity, what we're saying is that God's design for humanity has become twisted, okay? God, so like, Depravity means crooked. God's design for humanity has become twisted. When we say total depravity, we mean that that twistedness or that crookedness affects every inch of who we are. It affects us emotionally. It affects us physically. It affects us morally. It affects every inch of who we are and what we do in the world that we live in. So everything is gone off track because of the sin that Adam brought into the world. That does not mean that everyone is some brute savage. It doesn't mean that you are as wicked as you possibly could be. What it does mean is that there is no island of morality in your life from which you can mount some campaign to save yourself. Like there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You are dead and you need to be made alive. And some people hear that and they're like, I'm just not that wicked. Like I, I, I can always find someone worse than me. Did you see what that guy did to his dog? Like, at least I didn't do that. I'm a pretty good person, right? So maybe you don't want to say you're wicked. Would you at least say this? Are you perfect? No. No one is perfect. Here's the bad news. To be in a right relationship with God, God requires perfection. That's bad news. To be right with God, you must be perfect. Here's the good news. What God requires, he provides. And so what he's showing us here is that through Christ, there is a way to be dead to sin and alive to God. You see, Jesus makes a way for us to have eternal life.
Verse 23 says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, his second coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed, death. And so what we see here is that when Jesus walked out of the grave, death was defeated, but it won't be fully destroyed until Jesus comes again. Then it says, verse 27, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that that God may be all in all. You're like, subjection. That's all I got out of that whole bit of verses, subjection. What's going on here? What we see is that when Jesus comes again, all right, when he comes again, he's not the suffering servant. He is the conquering king, all right? Jesus will come to reign, all right? And, and so what we see in, the, in verse, in verse uh, 24, it says the end, right? It's like when the end comes, all right? Or when, when, when then comes the end. That is the Greek word telos, which is also a coffee company here in town, right? But telos comes from the Greek word that means goal. Like it's like, a, it's your, your aim, but it also has the idea of perfection. So he's saying like, look, this is where history is aiming. History is not on a trajectory towards where you die and then enter non-existence. History is on a trajectory to where death is fully defeated and destroyed, and then we enter eternity. And that end that we are aiming towards is an end of perfection, which means that when Jesus comes again as a conquering king, he's going to take everything that's wrong in the world, and he's going to make it right. He's going to take all of the brokenness all of the hurt, all of the, the aging, all of the illness, all of the stuff that we look at, and we go, why is this here? And it's like, God's gonna take it. He's gonna say, I'm gonna write every wrong right again. I'm gonna make it all new. Revelation 21 paints this beautiful picture of a new heaven, a new earth coming together as Jesus wipes away every tear. It's like the end that this is aiming towards is a perfect world to live in. So he's saying, look, what do we gain? If, if, if the resurrection happened, we gain eternal life with God where we get to spend forever in the presence of his glory. We get a perfect world and a perfect presence of a perfect savior. Like that's where this thing goes if the resurrection did happen. So what do we gain? We gain everything. Verse 29 is kind of weird. It says, otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? I don't know if you've grown up knowing Mormons at all, but you might be like, wait, are they onto something? Should I have some holy underwear? Should we start doing DNA tests and building out our family trees to get baptized on our family's behalf? Like, what do I do with this verse, right? So I'll just say this. This verse is kind of confusing. It's non-conclusive. What we do know is that the Corinthians were doing all kinds of crazy things, Right? And Paul doesn't tell us to follow their example. What he's doing is he's pointing out something that they were practicing, and he's saying, you're practicing this, and it's really inconsistent if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because if you don't believe people will ever live again, why would you be getting baptized on their behalf? He's simply saying, look, your practice is inconsistent with this belief system that would arise from your doubts. 
He's saying that that's really inconsistent. And so he paints a picture of how he's living out this personally. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's saying, look, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there's not heaven, if there's not eternity, he goes, all the suffering I've been through, all the suffering I'm currently going through on a daily basis, he goes, none of it makes sense. He goes, if there's no resurrection of the dead, he goes, there's no eternity. And there's no eternal consequence to the decisions I make on earth. And if there's no consequence to the decisions you make on earth, he goes, you should just live with self-indulgence in mind. Because you should just live for yourself. I mean, like, why would you go to church? Why would you give your income or, or a portion of your resources to, like, further God's mission? Why would you forgive someone who hurt you? Why would you try to live a pure life? Why would you save yourself for marriage? Why would you be faithful to your spouse? Why would you, why would you not just get drunk and lie around naked all day? He's like, like, like look, if, if you, you just do whatever you want. And if it's frowned upon on society, just don't get caught because it doesn't really matter. He's saying, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our lives would look a lot different. Think about that. If, if Christianity was all wrong, and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and you knew there was no eternal consequence, no eternal judgment, and you, were just, you just lived your life and then ceased to exist, what would you do with your life? You'd probably do things a little bit differently, right? But he shifts quickly in verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. He says, look, the evidence shows us that Jesus did rise from the grave. So wake up. Stop allowing culture to shape the way you're living your life and begin to let Christ shape the way you're living your life. He gave his life. His life's mission was to help people know God. And if that's true, if his life was true, then we should spend our lives continuing his mission to help others know God as well. If the resurrection's true, we gain a radical perspective on life that allows us to live for others instead of for ourselves. So what do we do with this? I just want to give two responses for two different groups of people today. The first is if you're not a Christian. If you're here today and maybe you're, you're questioning your faith or maybe you're here because like your parents just keep dragging you or your friends do and you're like, I'm not a Christian at all. Like this is just not my thing, but I keep coming and I just tune out whenever Jeff speaks. Um, look, if, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about this. Have you rejected the resurrection because you've taken the evidence to trial? Or are you rejecting Christ because you know if he's real, it means something in your life has to change? Are you choosing to push back because you've taken the evidence to trial? Or are you pushing back because if Jesus is real, it means that something in your life has to change. You're like, I just don't want to do that. I was talking to a friend who is living in a lifestyle 
that I'll just say it's not celebrated by most churches, all right? So his lifestyle is not celebrated by most churches. And, um, and I've been trying to get him to, to follow Christ, and, and that's his big hang-up. He's like, he's like look, like, this is who I am. This is the way that God created me to be. How could it be wrong? And, uh, and, and so I asked him this. I said, look, let's say that Christianity got it wrong. Just 2,000 years, we've just messed the whole thing up, and it's like, we were wrong. Sorry, people. Like, um, and like, you can come, and we're going to celebrate you. We'll get flags and parades. It'll be great. Like if, we came, like, if we would celebrate who you are and the lifestyle you're living, would you become a Christian? And he laughed and he goes, no. It's like, there's like 13 other things that I don't want to change that you'd want me to change. And the, 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 the mindset there is like, man, like at the end of the day, it's not about just celebrating one piece of my life. It's like, I don't want to change who I am. I want to live my life how I want to live my life and I don't want anybody speaking into it. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're like, I just don't want someone speaking into my life. Look, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not the best revivalist preacher. No one's inviting me to come to tent meetings. Like, bring Jeff in. He'll get a bunch of people saved. Like, it's just not happening. Um, but I want to be as clear as I possibly can. Look, if you are a Christian, your best day on earth will be like your worst day in heaven. But if you're not a Christian, your worst day here. I mean, think about the worst day you've experienced, that heartache, that pain, that abandonment, like that, that depth of just crying and knowing something's not right. Your worst day here would be better than your best day in hell. Look, Jesus has made a way for you to enter into eternity in the presence of God forever and to be in right standing with him, to experience the fullness of his grace and love. If you don't know Christ, would you accept that today? Would you ask God to forgive you for your sins? Would you ask Jesus to be Lord of your life? Because eternity is in the balance. You're like, what's he trying to do? Scare me out of hell? Yes. All right? Like, look, and I want to be upfront. Heaven is not for those who are scared of hell. It is for those who are madly in love with Jesus. But I'm telling you, hell is real, and that's the last thing you want to dabble with. And for those who are Christians today, I'll, I'll leave us with this. If the resurrection happened, then eternity is real, and we will one day enter it. Christian, are you living your life today with the mindset of eternity in the future? How are you spending your days? How are you spending your resources, your talents, your time? How are you going to spend this summer, the next year? Are you thinking through the fact that people don't know Christ? Will you leverage your life to help others know him and spend your life with eternity in mind? But wherever we are, this text calls us to respond. And my hope is that you will follow as God leads. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of the resurrection and what that means for us. God, that we don't have to bear the weight or the embarrassment or the shame or the hopelessness of a, of a false message, but that it is true, that because of that, we have eternity to gain in the presence of your glory. God, for those who are here this morning and do not know you, God, I ask that you would break their hearts in a way that only you could God, that you would convince them of, of their 
of their life that is running from you with a I want to do what I want when I want it attitude and God that you would break them of that and see that you are here ready to take them in as, as their savior. God, please bring salvation to this room this morning. God, for those of us who trust you, God, forgive us for living our lives haphazardly. Forgive us for living with a culture-shaped life that focuses more on us than on you and the people that you care about and are running after. God, help us to turn, to think through eternity and to, to have that in mind as we leverage everything you've given us to help others know you in a saving way. But God, wherever we are, I ask that you meet us and draw us to your heart as only you can. It's your name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.